Hi, welcome to another session of the Potter's Roundtable from Washington Street Studios in downtown Washington, D.C. No, wait a minute, that's not right. Um, it's in, we're in Bolivar, West Virginia. I'm Phil Bernberg, I think, and we're going to be continuing our discussion of myths, errors, and misconceptions in pottery. It's amazing how they creep in. Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. So last time we talked a little bit about, we had, we had talked about some, some ideas related to glazing, so I'd like to continue with that subject. Um, and one of, the, one of the thoughts that I heard was that, and you, maybe you've heard this, but when, and when you hear it, you sort of want to shake your head, is that stirring a glaze can make the glaze too shiny. And I'm not really sure, I mean, I can imagine some scenarios to explain that, but I mean, is it based on the fact that if you have large particles in the glaze and you stir it a lot, you're gonna break up the large particles and basically change the composition of the glaze? Or is it the fact that when you stir up the glaze thoroughly, you're actually getting all the, all the ingredients into suspension instead of leaving some of them on the bottom of the bucket? I don't know, but logically, it doesn't make sense. Because if the glaze is uniformly, if the recipe is a good recipe and it's supposed to be a matte glaze or a satin glaze and everything is in suspension and the recipe correct, you want the glaze to be thoroughly stirred. You don't want things setting on the bottom. You don't want large particles breaking up. So I'm not sure the origin of that, except for the fact that unless it is like the fact that like maybe the glaze when you, when you don't stir up some of the ingredients and they're lying on the bottom of the bucket, it would come out more, more it would come out more shiny that's possible, but you shouldn't be using the glaze that way. Okay, another one is that so you'll hear, and you'll see, you'll see cases where when you talk about glazes being flocculated to help keep the, the materials in suspension, that, that you can take a glaze, and if you have problems with just about any glaze, all you have to do is flocculate it and avoid some of those problems. But that the only thing you can flocculate in the glaze when you flocculate is the clay. So if the glaze recipe doesn't actually contain clay, you can't flocculate the glaze. When you're flocculating a glaze, you're, you're, you're suspending the clay particles in the glaze because of the little electrical charge that develops on them. And then by having they sort of create this house of cards framework of clay particles in the glaze, and that, that framework holds up the other materials in suspension. So, but it's the clay particles that you're flocculating. If you don't have clay or significant amount of clay, Putting Epsom salts in the glaze is not going to help. Okay, another one related to glazes is the use of hydrometers for, for measuring specific gravity. The idea of measuring specific gravity, well, first of all, let me define specific gravity. Specific gravity is the weight of something compared to the weight of an equal volume of water. So the idea of specific gravity, so since a glaze is basically powdered materials and water, and the powdered materials are always gonna weigh more than the water, by measuring the specific gravity or the weight of a certain amount of that glaze, you're essentially getting an idea as to how much water and how much of the powder do I have. If I had more powder, then the weight would be heavier. If I had more water, the weight would be lighter. And so this is used to, uh, to repeat the certain sort of consistency of a glaze. If you make up a glaze 
The idea is that you make up a glaze and you, you add the water to it and you get it just the right consistency that you like for dipping or pouring or spraying. And you want to remember what you did so that next time when you make it up, you can repeat that process. So there's a case where you'd measure the specific gravity. And then the next time you make a glaze, you'd shoot for that same specific gravity. And therefore, that would tell you that you had the same proportions of water and powder and you had the same sort of flow properties to it. But the problem is, or there is a, a potential problem with using a hydrometer. A hydrometer is basically, it sort of it reminds me of a buoy. It's a float. It's something that floats in the glaze. And they typically, commercial ones, look like this. And they'll be, they'll be, this is made out of glass. And this is lead shot or steel shot in the bottom. And there are marks on this glass stem. This is completely sealed. And the idea is that when I, when I float this in water and it's made to float, depending on how that the, the density or the specific gravity of the fluid, this will float higher or lower in the water. And I can get some kind of a reading off these marks. This is used, a hydrometer is used in, in making wine, for example, or it's, and, but the problem is they were really developed for only for use with solutions. So they're used for sugar solutions. They're used, for instance, they can measure the, they can measure the sugar content of grape juice and therefore tell how, how, how good a wine or how much alcohol will produce by measuring the specific gravity. The problem is that by floating in the, in the liquid like this, it can also be affected by the viscosity of the liquid. If, if the, if the glaze, for instance, if this is a glaze now, and the glaze is thixotropic, which means that it's kind of thick and gelatinous until you move it, 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 might, not, it might not give you an entirely accurate reading. So people use them, but they were not designed for suspensions. All of our glazes are suspensions. The particles are just floating in the water. They were really designed for solutions where everything is completely dissolved in the water. So to me, a better way to do it, and then you, don't, you, you whole, avoid the whole issue, is just when you're making up a glaze, take a small quantity of the glaze, let's say maybe a cup of glaze, and weigh that cup of glaze. And then that becomes your standard for that glaze. And then the next time you make the glaze, and you don't, in this case, you don't care. I, I don't, I'm not worried about count, you know, the ratio of, of the, the weight compared to the weight of an equal volume water. All I have is a cup of glaze, and a little measuring cup, a cup of glaze, and I have the weight of it. And, the next, and so the next time I make up that same glaze, I, I'll take the same cup of glaze and weigh it again. And if the weight is more than my original weight, that means I have more powder and less water, right? Because the powder is heavier. If the, if the weight of the, the new batch is less than the weight of the first batch, it means I have more water, so I can adjust it. And I don't care what the numbers are. All I, all I have to do is, if, this, if I get a weight here of 340 grams, that's the weight that I want that, that's what I, I want a cup of that glaze to weigh. And I can avoid the whole issue and, and even the expense of of the, the hydrometer, and it doesn't matter whether the glaze is thixotropic or thoroughly stirred or anything else. Okay? Okay. Another, so this is a simple way to do it. Just weigh it and, and, and record the weight. That, that's my standard, that's my standard for that glaze. When you do that though, use a, a reasonable quantity of the glaze. I, I recommend like at least a cup or so. Don't just do, you know, a spoonful or two. Do a, do a reasonable amount. Okay, another comment that I've heard is that glazes can go bad over time, that the glaze will sit and go bad and become unusable. Well, there's some truth to that, but it's, again, it's sort of gotten a little distorted. Basically, the chemical composition is not going to change over time. What may happen is the condition of the glaze may change. So, for instance, soda ash, which is sodium carbonate, 
I mentioned earlier, when the la actually it was in the last, last sec section of this discussion, is very soluble in water. This is so soda ash. Or this is a formula, sodium carbonate. Um, it's very soluble in water. And what can happen is if the glaze sits for a long period of time, especially if it sits in a condition where the temperature is changing a lot, it's getting hotter and colder and hotter and colder, what will happen is the solubility or the amount of sodium carbonate that can stay dissolved will change with the temperature. So what happens is it will start to crystallize. And so you might get little chunks of sodium carbonate crystals that are forming in the glaze. Well, excuse me, in a sense, that glaze no longer really becomes usable because you've got those chunks in it. Somehow you have to grind them up or dissolve them again in the glaze. So in that case, in that sense, yes, the glaze went bad, but the composition hasn't changed. The form has changed. Some glazes also deflocculate with time. We talked about that. And this is where um, the, the, the charges on the clay particles are changed. And basically, instead of staying in suspension, all the clay and all the ingredients settle to the bottom. And so the glaze appears to be watery. Well, the composition of the whole glaze hasn't changed, but the form of the glaze has changed. So it just needs to be reflocculated to bring it back. Um, and then finally, sometimes, again, uh, and I've seen this a lot in, in community studios and schools, a glaze might sit for a while and basically water just evaporates from the glaze. Well, again, the composition of the glaze doesn't change because when, we, when we're using a glaze, the water goes away. So it's the dry materials and the proportion of the dry materials that we're concerned about. So that doesn't change. But yes, the glaze might get thick and it might settle out. But it's the form of the glaze that changes, not the, not the actual composition. OK, um, another thing related to composition is that, is that the, a lot of commercial products claim to be, uh, commercial glazes and underglaze claim to be lead free. And I, I, all I can do is recommend a little caution about this because it may not mean that they don't contain any lead. What it may mean is that, that, that under an acid relief or an acid solubility test where they sort of a, a, attack the glaze with acid, less than a certain amount of, 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 of lead is released from the glaze. But it may not mean that there's no lead in the glaze. So it may not mean that if you ate the glaze, there's no lead in it. It, there may be lead in it, but when the glaze is fired properly, that then there is a, a certain, less than a certain amount. One of, the, one of the figures I've seen is less than 0.06%. That's, that's a very small amount. But the point is, so it may mean that when it's tested as a fired glaze, a very, only a very small amount of lead is released or less than that, and therefore they're allowed to call it lead-free. But it may not actually be lead-free. So if you're concerned about about a commercial product containing lead, I'd say get an MSDS, a material safety data sheet for that product, and find out if you're concerned about whether it actually contains lead or whether it's just the usage which is sort of guaranteed. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of the Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about, about some of these ideas related to kilns. Um, well, one of the one of the, the thing, one of the this is not so much as a, it's, this is sort of an oversight. When I've talked to people about, let's say, venting a kiln, this is electric kiln primarily. When you're venting a kiln, and so I've got an electric kiln, and I've got a downdraft fan on the kiln, and and I've seen this in a number of studios. They install the they, let's say the kiln doesn't come with the downdraft fan, and they install it later. Well, they don't. They forget to put any holes in the top of the kiln. And the whole point is that in order for this to work effectively, the, the, I need holes at the opposite side of the kiln so that when the fan is pulling the air, it's, it's pulling air down through the whole kiln. It's sweeping the whole kiln. If I don't have these holes in the top, the fan is going to try to pull air, and it's going to pull it in anywhere it can. So it might pull it in, for instance, through the joint between the sections, or it might pull it in through the joint between the bottom, which means that I'm not necessarily sweeping the whole kiln, and it's going to pull the air at the closest source that it can to the fan. So if it can get, the, if it can get all the air that it needs from down here, it's not going to take any air from the top. So it's important to remember with something like this that you put in the, the air supply. You have to have, give it an air source so that the air can be pulled. The same thing applies to venting the room of the kiln. If I have a room, if, I have a, if, if here's a kiln room, and here's a door, or let's say here's a window, and I'm going to put a fan in the window, I'm going to put a fan in the window, to draw, draw the air out of the room, I have to have some way for the air to get into the room. So I've, ideally what I'd like to do is, let's say here's my kiln, I'd like to have a door or a window or something open on the opposite side of the room so that when the fan is blowing the air out, it can pull air in and sweep the room and pull any fumes out with it. If I don't have, if I have another source, this fan will turn, but I'm not moving, I'm not really moving much air because the only way I can blow air out is if I provide an air supply for it. So it's important, and I've, I've, I've seen this a lot of times where people will put a fan in a window in an otherwise closed room. It's not gonna do anything because it can't sweep the room. It can't pull the air out. Okay. Um, gas, this, now talking about gas and wood kilns, there are a lot of design myths about gas and wood kilns. And especially, there's a lot of what I call wishful thinking about kiln design. This, because a lot of gas kilns are built, they're not commercial. Commercial ones are fine in general. Uh, but the, the, when they're home built or pottery built, potter built, then you can have a lot of sort of wishful thinking. There's a great, another great example, it's off the track a little bit, but of wishful thinking. Years ago, I had a book that was, that was about Victorian architecture and design. And it had a picture of a fountain that's sort of, this was an architect's concept for a fountain. <clears throat> and it had a fountain, and coming out of the fountain, there were little spiral, little tubes that sort of made a corkscrew. And the, the picture showed the water doing this. And so the idea was that after the, water came, after the water came out of this little spiral tube, it would continue to corkscrew up through the air. It kind of violates almost all the laws of physics. But, it, and again, a nice idea of wishful thinking. Well, I see the same kind of thinking when I, think, when I see a lot of kiln designs. People will build in features that they think are going to accomplish something, and they don't, because they can't. So, for instance, one of the, I've seen, I've, oh, and another, along, along with that, there's a word that's, that seems to be thrown a lot, around a lot with relation to kilns and a lot of other things, and that word is venturi. 
And the Venturi, the, the, there is an application for this. There are, there, are, there are burners, gas burners, that are called Venturi burners, and they look sort of roughly like that. And a Venturi is, is, the, is this structure where I have this narrowing, this neck, in the burner. And what happens is when the gas, this is where the gas comes in, when the gas comes in and goes through that narrowing of the pipe, in order to get through, it has to speed up. In order to get, for the gas to get through it, the gas actually flows faster through that narrow. When it flows faster, it actually creates a little bit of a suction. And that suction on a Venturi burner is used to pull in air. So it creates suction behind it by speeding up and pulls in air. That's a Venturi burner, and so this restriction is called a Venturi. This was, this was the same thing that operated in cars when you had a carburetor. In a carburetor, only the Venturi was operated vertically. And so what I had was, I had, this was my gas line coming in, and the air, this was open to the air, so then this was connected to the engine. The engine, when the, when the pistons were working, would pull in air through this, this part of the carburetor, and this narrowing of this neck on the carburetor would suck the gas in. So there is, a, there, is a, there is a real, this is called Bernoulli's principle. He's the person that discovered this or basically defined it. So there is a real principle in that. But in this case, and it's applied to the burner, but I've seen it applied to a lot of features that people build into kilns for no particular reason. Um, or for, for example, I've, some people talked about the fact that the size of the hole between the wear chamber and the, and the, um, and the, the flue, exhaust flue of the chimney can induce um, uh, can create a venturi and create turbulence in the wear chamber. It's all basically baloney. Um, it doesn't work that way. If you'd like to see a video version of this presentation, just head out to YouTube and search for Washington Street Studios. Um, but so you'll see. But I see a lot of misuse of the term venturi around kilns. People think that there's something beneficial about it, and there is when it's used in, the, in a, for a certain application. But it's not one of those things you can just put anywhere and get any benefit from. Okay, another topic related to kilns is that there have been claims about different kinds of coatings that you can put on bricks in a kiln to improve the efficiency of the kiln. And basically, that's not really true either. Because the, you might be able to, there, there might be some benefit to it. For instance, like you might be able to put, let's say you had soft bricks, and the soft bricks would be, and you wanted to use soft bricks for a soda kill, for example, which wouldn't be a good idea, but, because the soda would eat the bricks. But, it's possible that you might be able to put a coating on the bricks that would slow down the attack of the bricks by the soda. That's very possible. But you're really not going to affect the efficiency of the kiln that much because the efficiency of the kiln is based on something called emissivity. And the emissivity of something is the ability for heat to be absorbed and re-emitted re or reflected at high temperatures. And the problem is, Oh, for instance, gold has, has one of the highest emissivities of all the known materials, but we can't really make things out of it for a kiln. And by the, when you look at the, the range of materials that you can actually make a kiln out of, it's a very narrow range of materials, and basically at those temperatures, they all have the same emissivities. So if, if it will survive the temperatures of a kiln, then the emissivities are all about the same, which means that the amount of heat that they reflect or bounce back or re-emit is all going to be about the same. So it really can't have that, from that aspect, it can't have a, really a significant effect on the efficiency of the kiln. Now, if you can use the coating to plug up holes in the kiln, well, yeah, that can improve the efficiency because you're not losing fuel or gas out the holes. But in terms of just 
changing the way the surface of the bricks reflects the heat, it's really not going to do that much. And one speak, and here's another topic that I, one of my favorites as far as um, wishful thinking. I've seen designs, this is now for a pit firing um, setup. I've seen separations where you set up where you take a 55 gallon drum and you put a chimney on it like that. And the idea is, and so now it's full of leaves and it's full of pots and things. And the idea is that the chimney is going to create a draft and pull and pull the flame down through the, the work. Well, there's no reason why the, the why, and let's say, so I, I light this and I, so now I have, I have flames starting to burn at the top. There's no reason why the hot gas is going to go down and go out the chimney. The only way I can get this to work is if I heat up the chimney. If I can somehow heat the chimney, and it needs to be a fairly tall chimney, not just slightly taller than the barrel. If I can heat this up, then yes, I can create a draw at the bottom, the same way your, your chimney on your fireplace creates a draw in the fireplace. I can create this chimney, but it would have to be one heck of a draw to actually pull the, 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 the flame down through and up. So to me, this is, again, this is, this is wishful thinking. Unless I can reheat this, I can't get that to, to pull the flame down through it. Okay? Okay. I've got, there are a few more here that we'd, we'd like to talk about um, related to firing procedures. So I think we'll put those, we'll postpone those till next time. We'll do a, we'll do a part three um, for this topic, possibly a part four. Anyway, I hope to this point, I hope the discussion has been useful once again. Um, if you like the, the presentation, please like it on our, on our, like it and subscribe to our channel and share it with your friends and other potters. Um, this helps our videos get found on YouTube. Also check out our website www.hfclay.com where all of the other videos are accessible. We thank our patrons for supporting our educational efforts such as these presentations and if you'd like to help us consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com and look for the Potter's Roundtable. Um, the next topic in the series will be a continuation of this same, the same subject. We're talking about myths, errors, and misconceptions. So thank you for visit visiting with us today. Abadi, abadi. That's all, folks. The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website, at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable. <laughs>